Everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I am Executive Director of Healthcare Voter, as well as your host. And this isn't just a personal, uh, this isn't just a professional issue for me, healthcare. Uh, it's a personal issue because I am a cancer survivor and I have gone through the gamut of uh, out of network surprise medical bills, outrageous pharma costs, and more. So we are here to help answer your healthcare and health insurance questions. You can can uh, call or text them in anytime, and we will address them in our next episode. And our first question of the day is from April, uh, and they want to know, how old do you have to be to use Medicare if you pay into it um, for over 30 and can't afford insurance and have diabetes? Or how can I get insurance? Uh, And here to answer it, we'll start with Diane from Just Care and Social Security Works. Thank you, Laura. So the answer is you can be 65 and qualify automatically for Medicare um, based on your work history. Um, usually if you want um, free subsidized or free, free Medicare Part A, you have to have 40 working quarters, but you can pay in to Medicare Part A. Or if your income is low, you can often have um, the government support the premium costs. Um, and you can also be eligible for Medicare as a result of a disability. Um, and if you qualify for social security disability income for uh, 24 months, and then there's another five month lag time. So you're on SSDI for 29 months, you're eligible for Medicare and Medicare will cover the full scope of your health care. But if you're not eligible, for Medicare based on your age or SSDI, Zoid is going to tell you about what other options are available for you. Yeah, thanks, Diane. Um, so um, your other options will likely be through the health insurance marketplace. That's either going to be healthcare.gov um, in the majority of states, or if you live in a state that has a state-based marketplace, um, which you're not sure, if you're not sure about that, you can go to healthcare.gov, um, put in your zip code, and it will let you know where you should be shopping. Um, you can also do the same at healthsherpa.com. Um, so if you aren't eligible for Medicare yet, based on what Diane, Diane has said, um, you may be eligible for a tax credit through the marketplace um, that can lower your monthly payment. And you may also be eligible for, for some other savings as well that will lower co-pays, co-insurance. Um, and all of these plans that you can get through the health insurance marketplace are qualified health plans. Um, so they have to meet a, a certain standard. Um, they don't ask any questions about pre-existing conditions. Um, so those, um, if you're not qualifying for Medicare, um, you would look for those first, um, again, by going to healthcare.gov or healthstripa.com. Um, you can also see if there are any navigators or brokers in your area as well. Great. And our next question is from Merle. Uh, I'm 65 in September. When do I start registering for Medicare? Diane? A great question, because the great news with Medicare is you do not have to wait to your 65th birthday to register. You can sign up in the three months before the month that you turn 65. So that would mean you can sign up as early as June and it's really, really smart to do so. You won't have your coverage take effect until September, 
But if you do it early, you'll be sure that it does take effect um, on the first day of your birthday month, in this case, September. Um, and that will also give you time to shop for supplemental coverage if you don't already have it through Medicaid or through a former employer uh, to pick up the coinsurance and other out-of-pocket costs that Medicare. Great. Now, one more, one more sort of side note, which is that when you're signing up, um, if you are eligible and you, and you are enrolling in Social Security, then your Medicare premiums will come out of your Social Security paycheck. But if you want to wait and have higher Social Security benefits, uh, you can wait until the age of 70 for your Social Security benefits to get a 25% increase in benefits. And then Medicare will bill you uh, for your Medicare premium. Okay. And Zoid, uh, there's a national special enrollment period right now for low-income Americans uh, to sign up for health insurance. Can you tell us more about that and who qualifies? How do you sign up? Absolutely. Um, so this special enrollment period, um, it is um, for folks who have an income that is at or below 150% of the federal poverty level, um, which you can look that up. It's a little under 20400 for a single person, about 41600 for household size of four. So does the actual amount varies by your household size? Um and you have to not be eligible for Medicaid in your state and be eligible for a tax credit through the marketplace, which again, if you're not sure, you can find out by submitting an application that's free to do. Um, you can do it on healthcare.gov. It also only takes a few minutes to do on Health Sherpa. So this special enrollment period, it is not fully operationalized yet. It will be later in March. Um, but for now, you can still submit an application. You will initially be told that you can't enroll, that you don't qualify for a special enrollment period. Um, however, the um, marketplace is doing regular checks to find people who are, are eligible for this SEP. Um, and so you may then be reached out to within the next day or so. Um, so that you can then call the call center and enroll. And that's just while we're in that interim period of getting this actually operationalized. Um, later on in March, you should be able to just go ahead online and do that. Um, again, either on healthcare.gov or HealthSherpa, because um, we're going to kind of roll it out all at once. Um, if you live in a state that has an SBM, um, it's going to be a bit different there. Um, not every SBM is doing this, um, but many of them are, some of them are doing it a little differently. Like I believe New Jersey actually have it, um, sorry, SBM is in state-based marketplace. Um, and New Jersey, I believe it's, they're actually extending it up to 200% of the federal poverty um, level. So if you do live in a state where you're not shopping on healthcare.gov, you're going to a different site, um, then you'll just need to double check on that. Um, but again, you can also reach out and call the um, state's call center or Health Sherpa, and we can also assist you with figuring out if you're eligible for that as well. Great. Uh, and our next question is from Wayne. I'm turning 65 in July. I'm currently insured through my wife's employer. They don't offer Medigap plans. What's the best way to figure out whether I should sign up for Medicare? I'm very healthy. I understand the system well, having worked on Medicare issues uh, for decades. The beneficiary angle is new to me. Diane, you're muted. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, the, um, the answer is a little bit tricky here. So the, question, the first question is, how good is the insurance that you have through your wife's plan? And 
is that plan a plan that covers 20 or more people? Because if your wife is working for a company that has 20 or more people in it, you can stay on your wife's plan as long as you'd like and switch over to Medicare whenever you want, when you drop your wife's plan. Um, so if you want to go on Medicare, though, you can sign up um, as early as April. Um, as we were explaining, you can sign up in the three months um, before your 65th birthday, which I think you said was in July. Um, and then um, you would have to pay a premium based on your income. And um, if your income, I think, is over at this point, I think it's eighty-seven or eighty-nine thousand dollars a year. There's an increased premium. It, the standard premium is one hundred and seventy dollars a month, and then you would need a Medigap plan. Or if you wanted to use your wife's plan as your supplemental coverage, um, you couldn't actually, unless your wife's. If your wife's plan does cover 20 or more people, it would always be primary. So you wouldn't want to have both your wife's plan and Medicare. So you drop your wife's plan, you'd sign up for Medicare, and then you need to buy supplemental coverage, as you said, and you can call your state health insurance assistance program, and they can give you a list of the different options um, for Medigap in your state. And I know you said that you were in good health. Um, my advice here is that life happens. There are lots of curveballs. And the reason you have health insurance is really much less about today and your health care needs today and about tomorrow when, you know, stuff happens. And out of nowhere, you can be hit by a truck or fall on ice or get diagnosed with a serious condition and want really good health insurance. So I know it's really expensive, but one thing you don't want to be doing is gambling with your health care and not having all the health insurance you need. So you do want to sign up for a Medicare plan if you're signing up for traditional Medicare just to protect yourself against financial risk and ensure you can get whatever health care you want if you need serious health care. Great. And uh, the next question is from Mary. Why uh, are drugs so expensive? Uh, my blood thinner was $195 because of a donut hole. Uh, the month before was $131 and hasn't been $45 for months. So this sounds like Medicare. Uh, Diane? Yeah. So this is really unfortunate. Um, it feels as if you know corporate America controls our healthcare system and our policymakers to too large a degree at this point because we're paying way more, sometimes four to six to 10 times more than people in you know, other wealthy nations for our drugs. And that's because we've given the pharmaceutical companies effectively monopoly pricing power over the cost of drugs. And we can't seem to get Congress to um, agree on legislation that would regulate drug prices. As you may know, the Build Back Better Act, which still hasn't passed, um, does have in it a provision to um, cap out-of-pocket costs in Medicare Part D um, so that you would have a maximum, I think, of $2,000, which is still a lot of money. Um, and also it would regulate the price of, I think it's... Um, a bunch of drugs, not every drug, but dozens of drugs, the most commonly used drugs. So that would help a bit. But unfortunately, um, at this moment, um, 
the corporate health insurers uh, are winning uh, the day and lots of people going without needing medicines um, because they've become so unaffordable, even with insurance coverage. Lots of people, though, are going um, abroad for their drugs. Uh, you can go to places like pharmacychecker.com um, where you can order drugs often at just a, a fraction of what you would pay in this country. Unfortunately, if you pay, you have to pay out of pocket and the insurer wouldn't cover them. But, um, and it isn't technically legal, although the government has never prosecuted anyone for ordering drugs from abroad for personal use. Um, if your drugs are generic, um, there are some other options out there. Um, we talked, I think, last week about, or a couple weeks ago, about Mark Cuban's new um, Cost Plus uh, program for generic drugs um, that could save you a ton of money. And then I think I'm going to turn it over to Zoe for other options for saving money on drugs. Yeah. So, um, you know, if since you are on Medicare, it sounds like there aren't a whole lot of options, at least through the Affordable Care Act that I um, know about. Um, and there are some uh, copay assistance programs. Um, if you go to medicineassistancetool.org, that is one place where you can look for those. Um, unfortunately, some of those programs, a lot of them don't work if you're on Medicare because um, there's different regulations on programs like that if you have uh, Medicare or Medicaid. However, um, there may still be some, so I, it is worth looking into anyway. Um, and then, yeah, I would recommend um, looking for those online pharmacies. There are some, um, there's Mark Cubans, which is relatively new, and we're kind of waiting to see how that shakes out. Um, but there are others that are offer, also offering assistance programs, especially if you've been impacted by COVID um, or your lower income or any of the above. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Laura, are, are there some listed on our website? That's yeah. exactly what I was going to say is go to act.tv slash care talk. And we have a bunch of resources there uh, uh, about uh, lowering uh, drug costs and more. Uh, and next, I would like to introduce our special guest for today. Uh, Adam Fox is the deputy director of CCHI, the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative, and they uh, help uh, Coloradans uh, who get outrageous medical bills uh, how to uh, fight them, how to negotiate better terms. Uh, I will let Adam uh, tell us more. Thanks so much, Laura, and thanks for having me today. Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Adam Fox, and I work for CCHI, the Colorado Consumer Health Initiative. As Laura said, we do a lot of work here at the state level to help consumers resolve some of the the challenges that they run into in the healthcare system, particularly around billing. Um, We also do a lot of policy and advocacy work to try to prevent those uh, situations from coming up for consumers as much as possible. So, for instance, in 2019, prior to the federal law going into effect, we passed one of the most robust state laws against surprise billing. Um, So we work on legislative and regulatory issues to try to make sure that consumers don't get stuck in these situations as much as possible. But our healthcare system is ridiculously complex, and that means that it continues to happen in new and frustrating ways. So what... I'm going to talk a little bit about is from our perspective, there's sort of three angles to take when you get an egregious medical bill. 
as to some actions that you can potentially take. And some of these will be more applicable in some scenarios than others. Um, so it, just bear that in mind a little bit. Um, the first is really from the insurance side. Uh, there are a number of steps that you can take to advocate with your insurance company to uh, try to make sure that uh, they are covering what they should. Um, and so if you get a bill that you think your insurer hasn't paid on or hasn't paid enough on, you can file an appeal with your insurance carrier, or if they've denied that claim altogether, you can file an appeal. You often have sort of a series of appeals that you can use with an insurance carrier on any given claim. So you have usually two or maybe three uh, levels of appeals with your insurance carrier. And some of those include, uh, once you get to that final stage, uh, a, an external review process of your claim so that it's not the exact same person who's reviewing your claim and probably just denying it again. Um, the other thing that you can do, uh, and we've had a little bit of success through it with our sort of private consumer assistance program that we run, um, we have occasionally been able to push back on how much a, an insurer has paid in, in that they may have underpaid for a particular service. This is generally easiest if you have a tool like Fair Health or an all-payer claims database like we have here in Colorado that can help give you some supporting evidence as to sort of what the normal uh, reimbursement rate should be for that particular service. Um, so that's another strategy that we've used at times to help consumers. Um, and the, the appeals process can feel a bit intimidating and um, hard to navigate. Uh, there are generally lots of rules and timeframes about sort of how those appeals have to take place. So it's really important to pay attention to the correspondence that you're receiving from an insurance carrier so that you know that you're following and meeting those deadlines. Um, and there are sometimes groups like us who can help you um, sort of through that appeals process uh, to make sure that you're navigating it in the best way possible and submitting the strongest appeal possible. Um, the last stage is sort of another uh, tact that we will take. And this is true whether it's a healthcare provider or a health insurer. Uh, or hospital, you may be able to file a complaint with essentially the regulatory body that oversees that entity. If you feel you're being misbilled or mistreated in the billing process in some way. Um, so it, with insurance, that's often your division or department of insurance, you can file a complaint um, and that can help them advocate for you in some cases. Um, with hospitals, that may be your public health department, like here in Colorado, um, or if it's providers, you may have to file a complaint with an attorney general or something. Like that. Um, so there, there are lots of ways in sort of the, the insurance side of things that you can try to fight back if claims have been denied. Um, and if, if push comes to shove, there are regulators that you can pull in to help you as well. And I think Diane was wanting to chime in. Yeah, I just wanted to chime in to say that actually I, I founded the Medicare Rights Center long ago, and we founded it because what we were seeing was that 80% um, of people who filed an appeal, just a first level appeal, um, saw their denial overturned, but only 1% of people 
um, were appealing denials. And so um, our first job was just to educate people that at least with Medicare, you don't need a lawyer to appeal. Um, all you need to do is to take that denial form um, and say on it, write on it, you know, I'd like to appeal this. And then ideally what you wanna do is get your doctor to write a letter explaining why the service that you received is medically reasonable and necessary. And with that, um, basically, you had a very, very high likelihood of success on appeal. Now, getting your doctor to write that letter is not always easy, I understand. So we would often write that letter for our clients. But um, if you can even talk to the doctor's assistant and write it for the doctor and then send it to the doctor for the doctor's signature, that can work as well. Um, so that's, that's what we would do. But it is actually, at least the first level with Medicare is super easy and you have a very high likelihood of winning, whether you're in traditional Medicare or a Medicare Advantage plan. Is that true, um, Adam and Zoid, um, for um, the private insurance market? I think in general it is. Um, it can be pretty easy to, to go through the appeals process. I don't think the success rate is quite as high in sort of the commercial and marketplace plans. But it is still um, a pretty good strategy to uh, to pursue as far as trying to get the the healthcare costs covered. Um, so it, we, especially when we're helping clients through our consumer assistance program, have a pretty high rate of success with those. And uh, my insurance is through the Affordable Care Act, and I received a hundred thousand dollar hospital bill in 2017 while I was uh, going through treatments. And uh, what I ended up having to do was. I wrote a letter. I got a letter from my oncologist. I got a letter from the surgeon at the hospital. I had to track down my medical records at that hospital and have them um, add additional information to my medical record of my hospitalization. So it, it took months. It took a lot of work, but uh, my insurance company ended up uh, paying in full. So uh, regardless of whether you have insurance through the Medicare or through the Affordable Care Act, uh, I highly recommend uh, working with a nonprofit like CCHI if you can, but uh, you can fight these bills and uh, hopefully you will win. Um. I think the, so I've talked a little bit about the insurer uh, approach and some of the options you may have there. Um, you also have sort of the regulatory approach if there's a, a governing body that can help advocate for you in some cases. The, the sort of third bucket that we often engage in um, with clients here at CCHI is really advocating with the hospital or the provider um, on the bill that was sent. And the first thing that we're going to ask any client who reaches out to us is, do you have an itemized bill or can you request one? Because that is sort of the first step to understanding what are you really being charged for? Oftentimes you'll get a bill that just says sort of blanket um, charges for X, Y, or Z, and it doesn't actually break down the different services that you're being charged. And that, that itemized bill can be pretty important to identifying if you've been double charged or if you've been uh, upcoded where you might be being charged at a higher level for a service than you should be. We see that a lot with facility fees in particular. Um, where you uh, you go to a hospital and you uh, may have only needed uh, sort of urgent care level treatment, but you're charged the highest level emergency room facility fee that they can lever against you. Um, and so there, 
there are some opportunities potentially to push back against those. Unfortunately, in general, across the country, there aren't good regulations on facility fees. And one of the issues that we're seeing here in Colorado is uh, people who go in for routine outpatient care uh, that should only be uh, should only incur a copay or something like that. They're walking out with a four or five hundred dollar facility fee because many of these provider groups have been purchased um, and are now affiliated with these massive hospital systems that can charge these facility fees. Um, so it's something to, to keep an eye out for. Um, but ultimately, you need that itemized bill to really identify what are some of the codes that you're being charged for. Um, and again, you can use some of the tools that may be out there like Fair Health or if you have an all-payer claims database in your state to, ide <clears throat> to identify which, which codes um, may be being upcharged on you. Um, and Diane, you raise a, an interesting question in the chat here. How can you avoid a facility fee? Um, if you go to a hospital, you're pretty much uh, inevitably going to receive a facility fee. It's more an issue that we're seeing this come up with routine outpatient care. And that's something that you have to ask flat out to the provider like, are you owned or affiliated with a hospital? And are you going to charge me a facility fee? Because uh, we literally had a patient recently who went in for a service that um, incurred a $20 copay and then got a $500 plus facility, which is obscene. And that's not really the purpose of what facility fee anyway. And uh, just to uh, chime in on here, if you uh, have a chronic condition, if you see a doctor regularly, uh, as I do, uh, they will probably want you to get blood work there, but you don't have to do that. So for example, I have a visit coming up with my oncologist and I ask them to give me the blood work order so that I can go to a Quest or a LabCorp uh, close to me and get that lab work done. And it is much, much, much cheaper to get your lab work done at a facility like that than to get it done, to have it billed at hospital rates. I think the, the last couple of things that I'll say is if you're sort of, you've tried all of these strategies that make sense and you're still running into issues, um, that's when it can be even more important to reach out to an organization like mine. Um, there are advocacy organizations in most states throughout the country um, that may be able to help you, um, but it also might be an option to reach out to reporters and the media um, and leverage your story that way. And you might be surprised how influential your story can be. Often, um, newsrooms are tracking some of these issues on sort of an ongoing basis. And so your story might be part of a much bigger picture than you realize. And then if push comes to shove, um, you may have to try to negotiate a, a, a payment plan with a provider if you're ultimately not successful in reducing the charges. But it's important to be aware that many hospitals offer financial assistance and charity care. Um, and those programs uh, can be a, a huge resource to defray a, a particularly large medical bill from a hospital. Yeah, um, I was wondering, because we've talked about a little bit about appeals with Medicare and with private insurance companies. Um, do you know about the appeals process with Medicaid? I know that will likely um, vary by state, but I'm thinking of a 
particular example here in California, um, Medi-Cal, the RX benefits recently changed. So rather than having your benefit, your RX benefits specifically through your managed care plan, um, it's all under one third party. And that changed the drug formulary. Um, so for one example, if you were previously an adult, um, so over the age of 17, taking ADHD medication, that is no longer covered by uh, Medicaid in California. Um, and that could be a real shock to someone going to pick up their uh, prescription um, if they've pre if it's previously been covered. Um, do you know like, kind of what sort of recourse you have in situations like that? Yeah, you do have an appeals process in Medicaid typically. It does, Zoid, to your point, um, it does vary significantly by state. Um, especially for Colorado, we're one of the few states that isn't uh, as heavy in sort of managed care in Medicaid. And so often those appeals are going straight to our Department of Healthcare Policy and Finance, which oversees our Medicaid program. So it can be um, a challenge. And there are organized, we're not necessarily as, as much experts in sort of the Medicaid space, but some of our partners are. So we work closely with them. Um, when we have consumers that run into some of those issues uh, and need to file appeals with Medicaid. Okay, so it is possible, but you would need to look up the information for your state on how to do it. Yes, unfortunately. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us, Adam. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, keep asking your questions. Uh, call and text in anytime, and we will answer them in a future Care Talk. Thank you. <laughs>